You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hi, I'm Monica Toriello, an editor with McKinsey Publishing. And today we'll be talking about a topic that's very challenging for many companies, reorganization. And joining me to talk about reorganization are two experts on this topic. We have Shannon Hennessy, who is a partner in our Dallas office and recently co-authored an article titled Rethinking the Rules of Reorganization. Welcome, Shannon. Thanks, Monica. And Aaron DeSmet is a partner in Houston who is one of the firm's foremost experts on organizational design and reorganization and has been on the McKinsey podcast before talking about agility. Thanks for joining us today, Aaron. Thank you, Monica. Glad to be here. So reorganization can be a scary word for people at any level of a company, whether you're an executive or um, a manager or an employee. And some see reorganization as a necessary evil. Is it or is that the wrong way to look at it? Monica, I see reorganization as a way of life in today's corporate environment. Um, There's unprecedented disruption in the way that companies are working with higher requirements for things like analytics, uh, consumer touch points, and complex and remote work. And there's also a really big shift in the underlying demographics uh, and expectations of the workforce. So I'd say most companies these days are conducting a pretty big reorganization every couple of years, and some companies have actually stopped viewing it as an event in and of itself and started to view it as part of how they evolve and do business. I also think there's big benefits to re-examining the way you organize to get work done beyond just cost savings. Uh, There's ways to free up resources to invest in new capabilities and make things faster and more agile. I would echo that. We're we're seeing, because of the pace of change in the market and uh, a lot of turbulence caused by globalization, technology, hyper-competition, mergers and acquisitions, regulation and deregulation, it's, it's getting harder and harder to stay competitive if you don't reorganize fairly frequently. And I think some companies do continue to see it as a necessary evil because every time they reorganize, it's super disruptive. And many of them, many of our clients and, and other companies experience not only a lot of distraction and disruption, but at the end, they feel like after all that work, they didn't get all the objectives out of the reorganization that they had hoped for. And the success rate is, is actually pretty low. Um, one piece of research that we did, and it's been published in a separate article, is that only about 23% of reorganizations are deemed successful uh, by the companies as they look back on them. And of the unsuccessful reorganizations, most of the failed attempts actually unwound a number of the changes they had made because they weren't working. And, and a lot of this is because they're doing it wrong. The fear of doing a reorganization actually contributes to the problem. Many of this, these companies are waiting until the problem is so dire and so urgent that they can't possibly wait anymore. And then they're just dealing with with the fires and the problems that are such a burning platform that by the time they're done, they've missed a number of opportunities right in front of them. So one of the biggest success factors that we've seen is um, design for the future, design for where you're headed, not for the problems of the past. You need to fix the problems, of course, but if you only fix the problems, by the time you're done with your reorg, you'll already need to be doing another one. It's interesting that you talk about companies doing it sort of consistently or doing it every couple of years. But um, Aaron, in the past, you've talked about the organizational structure and governance and processes being sort of a stable backbone, right, that would last five to ten years. Um, 
reconcile for us what what it means to have a stable backbone, but also to be constantly thinking about organizational redesign. The concept is that some of the things that you might change in your organization would be, under any circumstances, pretty massively disruptive. But there's a lot of other things that don't need to be disruptive, that, that can actually feel fluid, like a natural evolution, like this is just part of working differently and better. And for the people who have to change some aspect of how they work, it actually doesn't feel that different. Um, and so getting this basic platform right of the stable things that won't need to change that often, getting that right, can make all the other changes a lot easier. The analogy I often use is a, is a smartphone. If you were to try to hardwire in every possible capability, what you'd end up doing is saying, I need my smartphone to have every possible functionality and capability built into the hardware and operating system, which even if you got it exactly right, you might get your brand new smartphone and it does everything you ever dreamed you wanted it to do. And then two weeks later, Shannon comes up to me and says, hey, did you hear about this thing called Uber? It's awesome. I just say I want a car and somebody just comes and picks me up. It's great. And I say, no, I want an Uber. Well, now that I've hardwired everything into, my, into, into this smartphone, I have to design a whole new phone if I want that functionality. Whereas a smartphone that's left huge areas of functionality completely blank, open, to be designed, to be determined for the future, there's still a, there's still a platform. There's still hardware and operating system that doesn't change very frequently. But now I can just download the app. And it's not hard. It doesn't feel disruptive at all. It feels great. I download an app and then I can just start using it. And organizations need to start building themselves like that. The minimum spec hardware and operating system on which I can apply dynamic capabilities. And in some ways, a natural fluid reorganization would be deleting one app and adding a new one. You mentioned designing for the future. Does either of you have any good stories about companies that have done that well, like really being deliberate about designing for the future? This success factor is what I call the Wayne Gretzky rule. So Wayne Gretzky is a famous hockey player, uh, one of the best ever. And when he was asked how he was so successful, he said, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where it is now. We were helping a company who had just um, made a couple of acquisitions and they were putting them all together into this new company and they were figuring out what, the, what structure they wanted. And as they were figuring out who the business leaders were going to be at the top of the house, um, one of the, the commercial organization was organized regionally. And I said, well, where's the future of the business? Like you, you've, you've divvied this up so that all the, all the regional leaders have roughly the same book of revenue, but where's the growth? And the answer was actually almost all the growth that we see coming in the next three to five years is all in two countries, the USA and China. I said, well, what if instead of having three or four regional leaders, you actually had five or six regional leaders and one of them was just the head of the US and one was just the head of China. And they, they, they didn't debate it for very long. After a very short period of time, they said, actually, that's exactly the right answer. That's the level of focus we need. And, and the only difference was the first time we had built the regional structure, we looked at current, his basically historic revenue. And in the next conversation, it, the question was, where's all the growth? 
I've seen lots of companies who have uh, made big shifts towards global growth. I think another very common designing for the future in the retail and consumer sector that I've seen is preparing for the growth of e-commerce and digital. Uh, so several years back, I had many of my clients who were looking at their e-commerce businesses and saying, wow, this is dilutive, right? And look at the span of control that some of these folks are working with. They, I have these buyers who are buying, you know, not that much sales volume. Uh, but there was another one of my clients who actually actually looked at that and said, this is where the world is moving. This is where the puck is going, to use Aaron's analogy, uh, and said, I am actually going to plan uh, to resource this business based on a three to five year business plan. And I am going to be prudent about how much resources I'm going to put into place, but I'm going to think about attracting talent and building an organization to deliver that. Much of what you've talked about is actually is resource reallocation, right? It's very hard for companies to do. And in your recent article, Shannon, you talk about one of your uh, provocatively stated rules is play favorites. It's about setting different cost reduction targets and different investment levels for different business units. And it seems to make perfect sense. It's very intuitive, right? But in your experience, why is it so hard for companies to do that? I think it's hard because uh, folks are rightly so protective of uh, making sure that they don't make big cuts or shake things up in what is the core growth driving and revenue driving areas of the business. So what I've seen is oftentimes those areas of the business have gotten a bit of a free pass when you're looking at making organization change because people are very fearful of actually rocking the boat. But because the pace of change has been so fast in business and uh, in the consumer and retail sector specifically, uh, a lot has changed for those functions and they're feeling overburdened and overworked. So what I've seen uh, to be quite empowering is really just take the time to get the facts, take a look at what's been going on in those functions. And when we've done that, we've actually typically found that um, there's a bigger need to reshape those functions than there is the back office functions, which folks have looked at time and time again for efficiency. There's also a mindset issue here where a lot of our um, clients that we serve when we go in, they don't, they don't realize they have this mindset, but leaders naturally equate the size of their empire with how much power and decision authority they should have. And the size of their empire is often based on historic success. It's been a successful business. It's a big business. It, it makes a lot of revenue. And therefore, I have a lot of resources to keep that engine going and keep that revenue coming in. And therefore, I should decide how we allocate resources. And guess what? When you ask people how, where they want to allocate resources, they usually want to allocate it back to themselves. And the, the person in the new business that's still small it's where the, all the growth opportunity is, where all the innovation is, where in the next five years the whole market is going to go. And even if you can see it coming, even if you had a crystal ball and you knew that, it would be very hard in a current organization that isn't playing by the new rules that Shannon's talking about. If they're playing by the old rules, even if they knew, they would have a hard time getting resources because all the authority to make the decision about the resources goes sits with where the resources already are. And that is what can be so powerful about undertaking a holistic look at your organization is when you actually do take this cross-functional, cross-business unit lens that Aaron's referring to, you can make those shifts. And it can be an incredible moment for an organization to actually line up with where the puck is going. And that actually relates to one of your other rules, Shannon, which is ask for bad ideas, which is basically a way of saying have somebody who's objective or several somebodies who are objective um, 
make decisions for the good of the entire business rather than just, you know, for one business unit or for one group within the business. What are some ways that you've seen companies do this very well? I had one client who had their CFO, who was one of the more progressive change agents in the organization, actually commit to taking a look at all the ideas that the individual teams were surfacing and particularly the ones that had been rejected through some of the uh, approval processes that led into the kind of final decision making. And uh, he would actually flag and surface ones he thought may have been rejected too soon. Uh, I had another client that said for every individual area, I'm going to have the functional leader, say the chief marketing officer in charge, but I'm also going to make someone equally in charge uh, who is going to be a fresh set of eyes, a provocateur, uh, who's actually going to make sure that uh, that person who may have built that organization is considering different ways of doing things and new lenses. It also helps to be aware of some of the conventions and orthodoxies that you are carrying with you. So I think a lot of companies don't always have the self-awareness of what their own biases are. And most of their biases are toward historically what's made them successful. And these are the companies that if they can't get past that, rather than disrupt themselves and continue to be at the top of their game, they're going to be disrupted by somebody else. Um, and and this, this has happened. This isn't new. It's just becoming a bigger problem as the pace of change accelerates. One way to come up with ideas, right, whether they're good ideas or bad ideas, is to look around you and, and to look at what competitors are doing. Um, and Shannon, in your fourth rule, you talk about um, some people paying too much attention to benchmarks. Is it fair to say that benchmarks can be a thought starter for idea generation, but they obviously shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. Yes, oh, one of the questions I get the most often. <laughs> Everyone loves to hate on benchmarks, uh, and I can understand where that comes from. I think there's people who have very deep scars on their backs for watching ben benchmarks get misused and trying to compare one company to another in a way that they really aren't similar. Um, that said, I have not seen anything be as effective as benchmarks as triggering some very hard questions like, why does it take 50% more resources in your organization to do an activity that's quite similar to a peer? Or how is it that this process at a, a peer company takes 30% as much time as it does for you? The broader point is get data and information and case examples and anecdotes and benchmarks. Get all that to inform your thinking, to open your thinking, to ask the right questions. But don't, don't let the benchmark make the decision. Don't look at a best practice and feel like you should copy it just because somebody said it was the best practice. Use it to inspire you, inform you, educate you. So does either of you have any stories about companies that either used benchmarks or external inspiration well and companies that didn't? I was sitting in a meeting uh, with the head of planning for a consumer company, and uh, he, we were looking through some of the inspiration benchmarks that we, we had brought to the conversation. And he said to me, well, tell me which one of these companies looks exactly like us. And I said, none. <laughs> uh, but I think that's oftentimes where folks' mind goes, right? So they throw it out uh, and they don't want to entertain the conversation. But what was uh, pretty magical in the room was we started saying, well, let's just actually take a look at what uh, peer company A, B, and C are doing. Uh, they're not exactly like you. Here's why they do it a little bit differently. But as we worked through that, we worked through maybe, you know, 20 different sets of ideas uh, for things other companies were doing, and only about five to 10 of them were applicable to this, uh, to my client, but five to 10 of them were <laughs> in a way that they hadn't really thought about doing something uh, differently. So I think uh, when it works well, it works, uh, as Aaron was saying, as a source of inspiration. 
I have seen companies look at something and say, wow, we should, if we automate that, we should be able to take out a lot of cost. The problem is they, they sometimes will take the cost and the people out before they have actually built the, the systems that, that fully automate what, what they're trying to do. And so that can be disastrous. Or they look at something and say, well, we're 20% we're over, and they just give a budget cut of 20%. Like, well, but why were you 20% over? And, and was it, you may have been 40% over in some places and researched exactly right in others. You, you have to get a little more granular. You can't apply benchmarks mindlessly. One of the things, Shannon, that you talked about in your article is to stop wasting people's time. Skip meetings where you're not needed and stop producing reports that are not impactful. It's a very common gripe, right? I'm constantly having to go to a meeting, another meeting, another meeting. Do you have any specific tips for how to stop having so many meetings? My absolute favorite tip is standing meetings. <laughs> it is amazing. If you actually ask folks to just get rid of the chairs and stand up, how much faster they'll go and how much they'll get on track. It doesn't work all the time, but I think it's actually a really um, kind of physical and visible way of, of cracking down on it. Take a look through a calendar to blow up meetings that have existed for a long time but are a waste of everyone's time. Ask the question around how many people actually need to be in a meeting. Think of how many meetings you see where it's someone's boss, the boss's boss, and then the, the boss's boss's boss that are all there in the same room. And just thinking about how you can actually get that done with fewer people. It not only eliminates time, but it's incredibly empowering for the organization to think that way. The first thing I would ask is, is this a decision meeting or a problem solving meeting or an information sharing meeting? If it is an information sharing meeting, the first question is, well, then do you need it? Could you just do email? If you do need it, you should be able to keep it to 30 minutes at max. A problem-solving meeting should have a small team of people doing real work. You should never have a problem-solving meeting that's more than six to 10 people. And then if it's a decision-making meeting, you need to make sure that you're spending almost all your time debating and discussing the decision. It's really important not only to list the decisions you're making, list who the decision-makers are, because it should almost never be everyone in the room. It's actually okay to have 30 people in the room. But you shouldn't have 30 decision makers. You shouldn't even have 10 decision makers. You should have like two or three. Everyone else in the room is either here to inform them and advise them or just to hear the discussion because they're going to have to go execute it. And it's a lot more efficient to not have to translate. So if you have three decision makers, all three better show up. And if they don't, you should cancel the meeting. If they feel like they don't actually need a meeting to make the decision, then cancel the meeting. This sounds very basic, but almost nobody does this. For managers or executives who have just gone through a reorganization, what are some sort of day-to-day -day, um, experiences that managers or executives have had that have sort of proven to them, even anecdotally, that this reorganization is working? We did the right thing. A couple of questions you can ask. One is, how easy is it to get things done? And if, if the answer is it's not, why not? Okay. Um, how quickly do we, are we able to make and execute good decisions? Do you know the value you're adding? What is, what, like ask someone what their job is, like really. What value you do, do you deliver? And when they tell you that the value they deliver is a report, let's say. Let's say they work on this really important report that comes out every week. Who uses your report and how do they use it? And what would be the problem if, if suddenly we didn't, weren't able to deliver that report. Now, they should be able to answer that question, but here's what, if, if it were me and I were doing management by walking around, 
I would ask who is the who is the one person who most benefits from your report, and then I would go talk to that person and ask them, and see if the answers match. I have had situations where I've asked that question, and the person's like, "Yep, it's this is the report. I it's great. It it delivers a ton of value." And I went and asked who their primary beneficiary with of that report is, and they're like, "Oh God, yeah, I I delete that every time I get it. I never read that report." Aaron, that reminds me of Office Space. It, it is, it, Office Space, is, the reason it's so funny and such a cult classic is because it is so true in so many places. Shannon, you, you've probably had many Dilbert moments where you just can't believe what you're seeing, but it's, it's true. This stuff really happens. And they're, they're often really good, smart people. These are things that evolve slowly over time and things just get disconnected. Monica, when I think about measuring whether or not a change has been successful, I typically think about it in two ways. I think about the military part of it and the marketing part of it, as I call it, the military and the marketing campaign. Uh, and on the military campaign, at the end of the day, if a reorganization is successful, it should have delivered its objectives, whether those were financial objectives or cost objectives or uh, strategic objectives. And it's important to measure those sorts of things. Uh, did it meet the timelines, et cetera? Uh, but then there's the marketing campaign side. One of the favorite things I love to ask is simply, are people clear on their roles in the new, in the new organization? That's oftentimes one of the biggest failure modes. Um, but I also like to find out if they're asking, is this the sort of company that uh, I'd recommend to a friend to work with? Right? Is it, do they have job satisfaction? Are they actually feeling better about the new co than they were about the company before? For companies that have been reorganizing poorly for a long time and haven't followed any of these these rules and fundamentally don't have clear roles and have a bunch of problems. Usually the first one is somewhat painful um, or at least hard. I don't know if painful is the right word. It's hard. Once you, if you get it right once, you can start allowing your organization to reorganize more incrementally and fluidly and easily in a way that's not painful and not even hard. Actually, it's actually quite, quite easy and natural, but, but if it's, if your starting point is really bad, then the first one usually is somewhat, somewhat of a heavy lift. Um, but to go back to once you get it right the first time and have built that stable backbone upon which you can then overlay much more fluid dynamic capabilities, the, the questions to that, that Shannon was, was asking about, is this a place you would recommend for someone else to work or is it easy to get things done or just asking the energy level, you know, how energized are you to come into work every day? The, the whole feeling of a place when the answer is it is easy to get things done and I love being at work and I'm hugely energized when I'm here and I would totally recommend this place. There is a buzz and an electricity that's, that's pretty remarkable and pretty special. And if you get the reorganization right, you can, you can help it to feel that way. I do believe it's hard to do an effective reorganization without at least some moments of pain. Uh, I think typically what you're trying to do is uh, really change the way the organization works. An organization at the end of the day is a bunch of people who have feelings right, and legacies. Um, and so I think no pain, no gain is, is probably more apropos for me than um, I, I think when folks avoid painful decisions, they usually just prolong it or drag out the agony. That said, I think you can manage it in a very um, humane and uh, wonderful way. And I think if you do a good job, you might have some pain in the beginning associated with change. Most people still don't love change, uh, but you emerge on the other side uh, with an organization that is happier uh, and has less pain than they started with. 
So let's end on that positive note. Thank you very much for joining us today. If you're interested, you can go to McKinsey.com for more on organizational redesign and agility. You've been listening to the McKinsey podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at McKinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.